Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Terry. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Isaiah 50 to 57. And we're really pleased to have our friend Terry Ball with us, who has spent a lifetime studying Isaiah. And for me, it's a real treat because Terry was my first Old Testament and my first Isaiah professor at the Brigham Young University Jerusalem Center 26 years ago. And it was your class that really enticed me to want to get into this field and spend years studying the scriptures. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad that you survived to have a testimony and have done so well. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Now, for this, this block of Scripture that we're covering, chapters 50 through 57, I could be wrong, but it, it would be my opinion that if you were to take a seven-chapter section out of the Old Testament and say which is the most messianic or which section of seven chapters can teach us more about the Lord Jesus Christ, I would vote on chapter 50 through 57. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd agree. For both the mortal Messiah and the millennial Messiah are both so well covered here. You know, when Nephi was talking about how to understand Isaiah in 2 Nephi 25, he said, those who read with the spirit of prophecy understand him better. And of course, in Revelations 19.10, we get that special definition of the spirit of prophecy, which is testimony of Christ. And, and, and those who read Isaiah looking for Christ they find him. And in these seven chapters, marvelous way to do that. And it's and it's not hard to find him in these seven chapters. It's so it, he puts it on a silver platter for us. Uh, it's it's profound. So without further ado, let's just dive in to a very quick overview of 50 through 57 as far as what can people expect when they when they open up to 50 and by the time they're done, they'll have finished with 57. What journey will Isaiah have taken them on? Yeah, you know, these chapters fit well into the overall theme of the last 26 chapters of Isaiah, where he's trying to help the, the people understand that God has a plan to redeem, restore, and save his people, and that he has the presence and the power and the knowledge and the love to save them. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnibenevolent and that as part of that plan, he's going to send uh, a mortal Messiah to suffer their sins and to redeem them, and he's going to send a millennial Messiah whose appearance will bring about an end to wickedness and, and the wicked and usher in this great theocracy of peace. He also makes it clear, and we see some of that in these, in these chapters, that there will be a group of Latter-day Gentiles who, um, who will be the stewards of the covenant, if you will. They will have the responsibility to gather scattered Israel in preparation for the coming of the millennial Messiah. And they won't be considered Gentiles once they enter the covenant because then they're recognized as part of the covenant family. You, you first see that in chapter 11 and chapter 49, and there are three or four places here in, in uh, this block where, again, harkens back to this critical role of these latter-day Gentiles who have this great responsibility to gather scattered Israel and prepare the world for the coming of Christ, and, and we love those prophecies. Absolutely. Which, by the way, you'll notice in, in the entire Old Testament there are 
two types of prophecies of the Messiah. You have prophecies related to his first coming, and then you have those prophecies related to his second coming. The Lamb that's going to come and be slain, and the Lion of the tribe of Judah who is going to come and overthrow the kingdoms of the world, take the governments on his shoulders and rule in, in might and majesty and power, and so you get these, these two kinds of prophecies. Beautifully, you get both elements in 50 through 57, and I don't know of any place in the scriptures that more beautifully portrays those prophecies of what's going to happen with the Messiah when he comes the first time, which is completely unexpected in an ancient context. Your, your king, your deliverer is going to come and, and do what? He's, he's going to suffer and he's going to die? That it, it's, it's a plot twist in the ancient world. Yeah, it's pretty clear in these chapters, but when you consider the people that were Isaiah's contemporaries, they'd had centuries and centuries of being dominated politically and physically, and so they, I think we can almost excuse them from wanting to look over this, this lamb because they're so anxious for the lion who would come and deliver them, but um, these chapters make it so clear that this first coming would be one that would be very different than the millennial Messiah. The lion, I like the lamb and lion, lion uh, paradigm. I've never looked at I'm going to plagiarize that. Do it. Good. Do it. I, I think in our day, I, I don't think people are that different. I think a lot of people still today, if they think about political leaders, they're wanting somebody who's powerful and can make things happen. And I'm just trying to think, have I ever known a political leader that garnered a lot of votes because of their humility? So I don't know if humans, we've uh, if we've made a lot of progress since the time of the ancient Jews. Okay, with that overview, let's jump in and get excited. These are good chapters. Let's jump in. Chapter 50, verse 1, he comes right out of the chute saying, thus saith the Lord. Isn't that an amazing phenomenon that we sometimes skip over or overlook? The ability for human beings, mortals, to speak with such authority and such power to say, thus saith the Lord. It's not, you know, I have this sinking suspicion that you should believe this, or I want you to know this. It's they're speaking for the Lord. I, I think we sometimes overlook the power of prophets, not just today, but through the history of time, that ability that God gives them to speak as if they were the Lord. Share my message. And he opens with a really interesting question in chapter 50. Um, I call this chapter the who moved chapter. You know, it's from that adage that if you say you find yourself further from God today than you were yesterday, you should ask yourself, who moved? And that's kind of what he's asking in, in, these, in these opening verses here, because obviously the covenant people in Jehovah have become estranged, right? And so he says, where is the, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put you away, or to which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? In other words, we've broken up. Did I divorce you? Did I sell you out? And look at the answer at the last part of that verse. The answer is, who's responsible for this estrangement? His answer that Isaiah gives is, Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. So he tells you the same thing two times, which we've been talking about, it's you. 
Yeah. Loved. It's not like when a boyfriend and girlfriend break up and the one who starts to break up says, you know, it, it's not you. It, it's me. <laughs> that, that's not what God's saying here. He's saying, no, it's you. It's your fault. You're the one who did this. And then after asking that question, he seems to be implying a next, another question in the next few verses. The question that I see, at least a helpful way to look at it, is to see the question is, why would you move? And, he, and the assumption is he's, he's thinking, did you move because you don't think I have the power to protect you anymore? You know, when I called, you know, in verse 2, no one answered. When I texted you, you didn't respond. We've broken up here. So in verse 2, have I no power to deliver you? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. The fish stink because there's no water. And I clothe the heavens with blackness. And I make sackcloth their settings. That's an interesting use of language. You'd wonder why he would use the idea that I make fish stink as an example of his power. Do you know why he does that? Tell us. Well... One of the gods to which these people were constantly apostatizing was the worship of Baal. Some people say Baal, but Baal. And he was a storm god, a god of thunder, lightning, range, vegetation, but storm. He sent the storms, and according to the mythology of Baal, he's the one who conquered Yom, this great the fellow who rules the water, symbolized by a serpent, and um, he conquers him this, this of the terrestrial waters. And so by saying that, you know, you think I don't have power? I do have power. It's not Baal who conquers the waters, dries up the seas and makes the fish stink. And it's not Baal who makes uh, the heavens be clothed with storm clouds. He's saying, it's me. It's Jehovah. I do this thing. And so uh, there's that kind of an idea that, you know, um, trust in me. We call this a Baal polemic, and there's a couple of others in this particular in this particular section as well. But that's an, a good example of one. Whenever you see in Isaiah's writings, when he's take, making the idea that Jehovah provides water, Jehovah controls the water, Jehovah sends the storms, Jehovah conquers the seas, that's all taking a jab at those who would worship Baal rather than Jehovah. And then as he continues to show that he has power to control and, and, and he is God, and so there's no reason to forsake him, he gives that beautiful messianic prophecy that follows. Yeah, it really is mind-boggling. Like, if God provides everything that provides sustenance in life, the foundation for all that you care about, why would you walk away from that? Where are you going to go? What are you going to get? Who else is going to provide the sustaining waters of life, physically or spiritually? So it's fascinating how God provides these very strong statements that should make it clear to anybody there really is only one choice to not move and to be centered in God immovably. Well said. So now let's jump into that that phase in verse 4, 5, and 6, where if you were to start with verse 4, you might think, well, is Isaiah, because you'll notice in verse 1, 2, and 3, he was speaking in first-person pronouns as if he were the Lord. He was speaking for the Lord, thus saith the Lord, remember? And then if if you were to just read verse 4 all by itself, you might think, hmm, now is Isaiah talking about himself? The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wake, uh, wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. And you could say, hmm, I wonder if that's Isaiah. But if, as you keep reading, you realize, ooh, He's speaking now for the mortal Messiah in, in one way that you can interpret these, because look at verse 5. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Look at verse 6. 
I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Who's he, who's he referring to? Yeah, it's, clearly this is the, the suffering servant that we identify as the Messiah. Throughout these latter chapters of Isaiah, there's this collection of passages that we call the servant songs. Now, I'll deal with a suffering servant whose suffering and service blesses the covenant people. First one's in the first part of chapter 42, the next one's the first part of chapter 49, and then this one in the middle of 50, the end of 52, and then all of 53. It's interesting that academics try to identify different people as this servant. Some say it's the nation of Israel as a whole, some say it's maybe Isaiah himself, or maybe it's Cyrus, this great conqueror. And it's true that some of those other individuals fulfill some of these servant songs, but they must all be viewed, those other individuals, as a type for Christ, because at the end, only Jesus Christ, the mortal Messiah, fulfills all the servant songs, and some of them only he can fulfill, for example, chapter 53. But I love the way this, this shows that not only did he suffer these things, but he was willing to suffer these things. You know, there's three really important truths and we can see fulfilled about the mortal Messiah in these. First of all, he was really well educated, taught from on high. The Lord gave him that ability. He was, of course, he had it in the pre-mortal life as well. When we were in Godhood 101, he was in Godhood 698 and he was doing so he, and then we learned that he willingly endured all these things. And then the closing verses of this particular servant song makes it clear that, that uh, he has great confidence that he can finish this message. I set my face like flint. Yeah, we say it's set in stone, but he's determined to carry through the will of the Father. And in the end, his message and work will persist while all his persecutors will wax old and fade away. Perfectly trained, a willing sacrifice, and one that will last eternally. Which, by the way, that word that you threw in there, willingly, that is so important because this was not something where he had agreed to do it, and so now he's as if he were bound by cords, losing agency and thrown into this, this atoning sacrifice against his will at that point. At any point, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus chose to continue to go through that suffering for us. He, he's, at no point does he lose his agency. This is a willing offering from the moment he begins it until he can finally say, it is finished, and then give up the ghost, um, which now brings us down to verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Uh, the symbolism here is amazing when you then couple it with verse 11. So, before we go to verse 11, this idea of can you go into situations where you don't have everything clearly illuminated for you, the next 20 steps of your life are darkness, you don't know, but you've gotten from the Lord enough to be able to trust him to take one more step forward on that covenant path. Can you do that and move forward? Because Jesus showed us how to do that throughout his whole life, culminating with his infinite atonement. But then verse 11, Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks. Do you notice the difference? 
people who say, well, I'm not getting the direction from the Lord, so I'm going to make my own light. I'm going to create my own fire to show to light my own path. Well, what's the what's the the promise here from Isaiah? Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall ye have of my hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. There's a there's this stark light and dark contrast that Isaiah is painting for you. You can either trust in God, trust in the Savior who is the light of the world, and move forward in faith even when it's darkness and you can't tell, but you know enough – it's the Elder Neil L. Anderson principle – you may not know everything, but you know enough, or you can surround yourself with your own man-made forms of light, but the promise is it's not going to end well. You're going to lie down in sorrow if that's the path you take. What a glorious way to live when your idea is, my great desire is to walk in the light of the Lord. Not, not my own light, but I really want to walk in the light of the Lord. And the beautiful thing is, if we take a moment to ponder what is the Lord's light directing me to do, we know. We get the answers. The feelings come to our hearts. The thoughts come to our mind. It's one of the great manifestations of God's love for us. I think about the Book of Mormon where Lehi sees a pillar of fire, God's light, and then he goes and lays down and has a vision. He's not laying down in sorrow, he's laying down in the light of God to see this incredible vision of God's work. So there's this interesting connection I see with the Book of Mormon. Wonderful. Okay, let's jump into chapter 51. Terry, what are your favorite parts here in this incredible chapter? This, um, this chapter is just so full of imploring imperatives as God is just pleading with us and inviting us to come to him. As you skim through and look at the first words of so many verses, you see imperatives are command words, right? Mm -hmm. So it's words like, hearken to me, look to Abraham. Verse 4, hearken unto me, my people. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heaven. Verse 7, hearken unto me. Verse 9, awake, awake. You know, you just feel so much of God's love as he's imploring and inviting us to come to him. My title for this chapter is Remember Who You Are because the way it starts, you know, you probably remember when you went on your first date as you're heading out to the car, the door flies open and your mother sticks her head out and says, remember who you are. <laughs> and you know what she means. I mean, you know who you are, but she wants you to remember your relationship to God because we always use our agency better when we're thinking about Heavenly Father. Honestly, it, it's hard to sin when you're singing, I am a child of God. I, I'm not suggesting you try that, but that's a true principle. And so here, who does he want them to remember who they are? Hearken unto me that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock when ye are hewn, and the hole of the pit when ye are digged, look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. So, a question for you, what what should it mean to us to know if we're descendant of Abraham and Sarah? Why did he pick them? This, this incredible couple, the father and mother of all the faithful from their point in time moving forward, if you're going to be saved, it's going to be as a member of their family because their grandson Jacob, whose name has changed to Israel with the twelve sons, that's, that's the family appointed by God where salvation will come. So even if you're not a literal descendant, as you've already mentioned, if you're a pure Gentile but you accept the covenant, you now are adopted into one of those tribes, thus becoming a son or a daughter of father, mother, Abraham, and Sarah. And as such, as part of the covenant family, heirs to all the father has, 
And so when you know that's your destiny, you use your agency better. As, he, as he's going on here, he's continuing to, to, again, establish the fact that he has the power and the presence and the knowledge and the love to save them. And he repeats that over and over again. Another example, verses 9 and 10, is another Baal polemic, another place where he's, he's making the point that Jehovah does things that the Baal worshipers are ascribing to Baal rather than Jehovah. And so he says in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it? He's probably a better translation. Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? In the myth of Baal, um, Baal slays Yom, who is symbolized by a dragon. But he's saying, no, you're the one who conquers this brother God who rules the waters. Yes. And you're the one in verse 10 who dries up the seas. Yeah, these symbols of chaos, if you go back to creation, it's all this chaos where God imposes order and then he rests. This, these temple texts, these Sabbath texts, and that's ex what he's alluding to here is that the chaos of life, God ultimately has full control. And if we choose to align ourselves with God, we have the monsters of our lives, the chaos of our lives cut in half and orders placed back in our lives and we were put at rest. And that is what the symbol of the temple is. That's the symbol of the Sabbath day. So well said. And I love the language, the, the poetry of verse 11. This is a, such a promise. Therefore, because Jehovah has done this, the, dreamed, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall he be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. The thing that's amazing to me, Terry, in, in sections like that is these people, they don't deserve it. And quite frankly, we don't deserve this kind of, of mercy and grace, and yet God extends it anyway. And it, these, so if you take what he talked about, these imperatives, these command forms, instead of seeing them as angry, forceful commands coming from God, but rather these loving, kind extensions of his grace and his mercy pleading with us to walk in his paths because he knows where his paths lead and he knows where our own paths are going to take us and where the devil's paths lead. And you see, if, if you start looking at the, the patterns through this writing, we've already read verse 9, awake, awake. It's this waking some group or an individual up from a slumber to open your eyes be cognizant of what's around you, what's going on in life. Notice if you turn over to verse 17, for instance, he repeats the phrase, awake, awake. This time it's, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk of the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. The Lord Jesus Christ knows of what he speaks when, whenever drinking cups especially bitter cup, down to the dregs, is being referenced here. And yet, it was uh, Elder Neil A. Maxwell who once said something along the lines of, Christ partook of history's bitterest cup without becoming bitter. And yet, you and I sometimes are given some trials, tribulations, a small bitter cup, and if we're not careful, it will end up embittering us. So, as, as a little tie-in here, but it's this idea of waking up, recognizing things as they really are, get out of the dreamland, get out of the sleepful state that you've fallen into, Israel, or as an individual, 
and recognize all these amazing things that the Lord thy God hath done for thee. Verse 18, there is none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth, neither is there any that taketh her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. What is he referring to there? Yeah, there seems to be a, a, a lack of leadership and certainly nothing on earth that can help them, but if they'll turn to him, they'll come to know. I love when you're speaking of drinking of the dregs of the cup, I love the promise that comes if you have turned to him in verse 22. He says, Behold, I've taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of thy fury, that thou shalt no more drink it again. The symbolism of that is, I've taken that bitter cup out of your hand and out of your hand and out of your hand and out of my hand and combine it all together. That's, that is what Jesus's bitter cup was. It's not anything he did, it's things that we do that he then takes for us and consumes in, in a symbolic sense. And in verse 23 also sees that the author of all that bitterness eventually gets his due as the cup is also put into the hand of those that afflict them. Now there's an ancient political fulfillment of that saying that they'll eventually rise over their, the conquering nations that had ruled over them, but those are a type for the eventual end of the adversary. He'll be forced to drink the cup of his choices and no more be foisting them upon us who will allow Christ. So, Terry, you mentioned this chapter you have as your header, remember who you are, and it's about identity. If, if you look back at verse 12, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. So, our identity is tied up in, our, our, in knowing God's identity. So, he's trying to remind everybody who he is so we know who we are. So, we remember who we are as we remember who God is. Think about sacraments. What is the promise you make? You promise to always remember him. And as you always remember him, you are far more likely to remember who you are and to trust in all these promises that he's the one who takes these dregs from you and gives you sweet in place of the bitter. So now we turn to chapter 52, which uh, I could be wrong again, but I believe that this is the most quoted chapter in, in the Book of Mormon especially. Nephi quotes from 52, Abinadi, Jesus, and Moroni. They all quote from Isaiah 52. It seems to be a, a go-to favorite of, of Book of Mormon authors, including the Savior himself. Um, it, Notice how it starts? Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments. This clothing, taking, taking clothing upon you, coverings, there's, there's beautiful atonement symbolism here, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. You know, Joseph Smith was asked in DNC 113, as recorded by Elias Higby, what it means to put on your strength, and he said, to rise up and exercise your priesthood to bless and, and serve others. He wasn't asked, what does it mean to put on your beautiful garments? Let me suggest another way to look at this. It's also helpful. Um, back in chapter 49, it talks about how the people felt like God had forsaken them, and he lets them know he hasn't forsaken them with that beautiful imagery, can a woman forget a nursing child, and I can't forget you because I've graven you in the palms of my hands and your walls are continually before me. And then he tells the covenant people to lift up their eyes and look because they're going to see a huge group of people come 
and that they would clothe themselves with them as a bride doeth and bind them on them as an ornament. In other words, this huge group of people are going to come and it'll be like a bride putting on her wedding attire, okay? If you accept these people, you're going to be putting on your wedding attire. And then as the verses proceed there in 49, it makes it clear that these are latter-day Gentiles who will come to witness that God hasn't forsaken them and that they'll be shocked and say, whoa, where did you come from? You know, who hath begotten me these, seeing I was left alone, a captive tossed to and throw these? Where have they been? Well, they're the nursing Gentiles and nursing fathers, nursing kings and queens who bring them back and nurse them back into the covenant. And so back in 49.18, where it says, You'll put them on like putting on a garment, a, a wedding dress, which you do just before the bridegroom comes. I wonder if that's another way to look at this. Wake up and accept the message of these Latter-day Gentiles who are bringing it to you and recognize them as part of the covenant family. If you understand it that way, then the next end of that verse makes sense. For thenceforth there shall more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Yeah, and those adjectives are usually used to describe just the Gentiles. But they're not Gentiles anymore. They're part of the covenant family. So one helpful way to look at that then is he's saying, wake up, start exercising this priesthood authority and accept the gospel that's being brought to you by these folks. And it's like you're putting on your temple clothing, getting ready for the coming of the bridegroom. It's beautiful, especially, and, and you take it down to verse 2, shake thyself from the dust, arise, and sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And in Isaiah's day, these people, their whole story has been one of, of captivity and destruction and conquests from various kings and whether it's huge world empires or, or skirmishes with the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites throughout how many generations of their history. And here's the Lord saying, you know what? We're done with all of that. You don't have to stay hostage to these past struggles that you've wrestled with for so many generations because now I am here with you. You, you can trust in me. You don't need to stay down on the ground where people are treading you underfoot and keeping you in captivity, which, by the way, is a beautiful lesson for them in history back then. But I think it's an even more beautiful lesson for us today when you consider the various forms of captivity that people wrestle with individually or collectively in our world today, and the Lord promising to be able to deliver us from those things as well. I love the way he states that promise in the third verse. You sold yourselves for naught, in other words, you've put yourself into captivity for nothing, but you'll be redeemed without money. He, um, he kind of hints at that in chapter 55 as well in verse 2. Wherefore did you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight in fatness. Well, I guess it starts in verse 1, where he says, Come to the waters, he that hath no money. This is chapter 55, verse 1. Come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. There's this idea that you could sell yourself and put yourself in captivity, but if you're willing, there's a way for you to be redeemed and saved, and it's not going to cost you anything. So how do you make sense out of that? I love the fact that for the Lord, he's not judging us based on how much money we have in our wallet or in our investment accounts, that rich all the way down to the poorest of the poor, 
have equal claim on the blessings of the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ. I love that. Some people say this is salvation by grace. It's a salvation that we don't deserve. I like the bank account analogy. Let me, let me suggest another way to look at that. Each of us recognize how deeply indebted we are to the Savior for what he's done for us. We'd love to pay him back, right? And normally when you pay someone back, your bank account goes down and their bank account goes up. If you owe them $100, you give your $100. When you pay them, you're $100 poorer and they're $100 richer. And we don't have that currency to pay Jesus back. We'd love to, but he has told us how to pay him back. If you love me, keep my commandments. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So the currency with which we pay Christ back is our obedience, our love, and our service. Now think about that. So we owe Christ, we pay him back through our obedience, our love, and our service. After we have made that payment to him, are we poorer? We're, I think King Benjamin would say we're richer. Yeah. So it's almost like he's saying, you owe me $100. When you put $200 in your bank account, your bank account, I'll forgive the debt. And so in the end, it's cost us nothing. And so you are redeemed without cost to you. It's That's an act beautiful. of pure grace. That is a beautiful insight. It's, that adds a whole new level of understanding to this idea of in giving, ye receive. And, and in, the, in the economics of the Lord, that's exactly how it works. You never, ever put an offering on the altar of the Lord and walk away poorer than you walked up. You always walk away richer. And that's why, why opportunities like paying tithes and fast offerings to me has always been such an amazing commandment, not because, oh, I don't know if I can afford this, but it's more of a, I can't afford not to to make this offering to the Lord to show him I love him more than I love this money, and somehow, some way, the windows of heaven open up, and it doesn't mean that we all of a sudden become rich financially in every case, but wow, the ways that he blesses our lives that have influences on our finances, it's incalculable. So it's like a thanksgiving. We're giving thanks. And here's the amazing thing. The ancient meaning of the word thanks really means to give. So when we say thanksgiving, we're really saying giving, giving. So that's what God asks of us. He has modeled giving. He gave everything and he asks us of, of us to show our thanks by giving to others and to him. And in so doing, everyone is multiplied. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to say it. And so the giving doesn't diminish us, it enriches us. Now we get into this, there, there's a little sequence here in verse 7 and 8 that is actually used by, by one of the priests of King Noah to try to trap Abinadi when they're teaching or when he's teaching that group. Uh, verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Now you can probably guess as to why the priests of King Noah would be quoting this against Abinadi to say, some false prophet you are because a good prophet's going to come and publish peace and he's going to say, hey, I have a declaration, thy God reigneth. It's all good, but you're here preaching doom and gloom, right? 
Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, and with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. In our current world today, these two verses might feel a little bit uh, confusing as to what exactly is Isaiah referring to, because we live in a world of instantaneous communication across the world. But in Isaiah's day, stop and think about warfare and the constant threat of a conquering army coming to destroy your city and carry you away captive. It's happened a few times. So what happens, you've got a fenced city or a walled city, you send out your army to, to the battle to defend your, your people, and you have no way of knowing how the battle's going unless somebody from, so here's your city, and somewhere out here there's a battle going on, so what do they do? They send runners back to a mountain that's as far away that can still be seen from a watchman on the tower of the city to be able to see to get the message, and this person can signal back what's happening out here so that if we're losing and they're coming and we need to get everybody either out or or secure the city even more, we can get that message. Look what he said here again, go back to verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of this guy who can make whatever signal it is to say, the war's over, we won, our God reigneth, we've prevailed. You can, you, you don't need to be afraid of death and captivity anymore. How beautiful are his feet! And what about him and others up on the tower? Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. They're now going to shout into the city, and with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. What a wonderful thing it is to be able to do this. Now the question is for us, who are these people who are signaling back from the, the battle what we need to know, what we need to hear? Obviously prophets, seers, and revelators, and other church leaders, obviously inspired parents, inspired friends, and, and family members, and colleagues. What an amazing thing it is when we work together to share this glorious message rather than a message of doom and gloom. And I don't know about you, but when I watch General Conference, I don't hear prophets standing there saying, it's all terrible, there's no hope, we should give up now. I don't hear that. I see beautiful feet upon the mountains declaring victory if we'll just make sure to stay in the covenant city, so to speak, in Zion and not flee out of fear. That's a beautiful way to illustrate it, Tyler. I really like that. That's, uh, and that's kind of the message that, Isaiah, that Abinadi gives as well. As you recall, when they ask him what this means, he says, are you priests pretend to teach his people and you ask me what this means? And he, and he says, what are you teaching them? And they say, the law of Moses. And then he says, why aren't you living it? And he goes through the law of Moses and, and and, and condemns him for not actually living it, but then he says, I say, and then he asks them, does salvation come by the law of Moses? And they said yes, but he says salvation does not come by the law of Moses alone. 
And he uses that as a segue in to teach about Jesus Christ, which he's going to quote Isaiah. And then after he quotes Isaiah 53, he then says, just like you said, and how beautiful are the feet upon the mountains of those who bring that message of Jesus Christ, the prophets and, the, and those who have believed and kept his covenants and our missionaries as well. And I think um, there are a lot of people who worship the ground those missionaries walked on. How beautiful were their feet when they came oh, to bring them to Christ. But don't you find it fascinating that they, they ask their big question from Isaiah 52 and the way that Abinadi ultimately answers their question is by addressing it from 52 but then saying, let's get into 53 and talk about the ultimate feet on the mountain that publish peace. It's the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's, that is the ultimate fulfillment of all of this. And he could have actually started with the last verses of chapter 52 as well. Absolutely. Because that's another one of the servant songs that, that lets them know again about what this Messiah will do. In fact, let, let's, let's get those. Verse, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, as many were astonished or astonished at thee, his visage was marred, was so marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of man. What does it mean when it says his visage was so marred more than any man? Visage means the appearance, right? Mm -hmm. So there's something about him that is marred more than any man and something about his form that is marred. He's gone through something more than any other person has ever gone through. And that's put right in the middle between 13, 14, and 15. 13 and 14, 13 and 15 both make the point that he's very high and kings are going to be surprised, he's so extolled. This idea of where you're bracketing this idea that he's going to be really high and powerful, but right in the middle you need to understand this. His visage is going to be marred more than any other man. So the question was, if this is speaking of Christ, when and how and why was his visage marred more than any man? Which, which is fascinating. If you look at it this way symbolically, because Isaiah, being a Hebrew poet, loves painting symbolic pictures for us, right? So you have he who was the highest of all, the, the most high in the premortal realm, Jehovah, the greatest of all, firstborn of the Father, the only begotten of the Father in the flesh, he who is the highest actually becomes, through his condescension, he descends below all of us so that he can then exalt us. So God condescends to become a man, not just a man, but lower than all of us, descending below so that he can then bring us up to, to have that eternal glory given to us. Stop and think about it this way. In the Hebrew, this was an insight that uh, our colleague Paul Hoskison shared with me on one occasion. And if you look this up in Strong's, if you, if you go to Strong's Concordance and you look up verse 14 and click on the word for marred, you will find that the, the Hebrew word there, if you change the vowel markings, keep the exact same consonants, just change the vowel markings, which, by the way, all of our ancient manuscripts, whether it be Dead Sea Scrolls or the Masoretic Texts or any of our Hebrew Old Testament, our, our oldest manuscripts, 
How many vowel markings do we have? None until the Masoretes in the first millennia AD. That's right. So there, all you have are the consonants. Well, guess what? If you just change the vowel markings but keep the same consonants, it becomes the word anointed. Mashiach. It was Paul Hoskinson who pointed this out, that he who was anointed, if you use certain vowel markings, more so than any man, the verse still works, especially in context of verse uh, 13 and 15. There is nobody who is higher or more anointed, more prepared by God to do whatever needs to be done than Jesus. But because he's so highly favored of heaven and of God, he becomes so highly marred and so poorly treated more than any man on earth. And you just change the vowels and you've got, you've got this wordplay in Hebrew that's sitting there on a silver platter for us in the Isaiah texts, and in my mind it's amazing how God can so highly favor him, and because he is so powerful and so anointed, he becomes treated so badly by, by men and women on the earth. Yeah, so you've mentioned two ways that his visage was marred more than any. No one condescended more to come into mortality, to go from Jehovah to the, you know, to go from being the God of the Old Testament to the babe in Bethlehem is a huge condescension. And plus, it also points to what he endured in Gethsemane at Golgotha. No one suffered or could have suffered as much as, much as he did. And, and then the anointed idea is powerful. I love the next verse, though, because it explains the why. Where it says, so, or we would probably say thereby, same word in Hebrew, thereby shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, the JST suggests that the word sprinkle could be gather, and that makes excellent sense. He is going to be more anointed and more marred than any man, and by his suffering and his anointing, he is going to gather many nations. But to our Hebrew brothers and sisters, sprinkle makes real good sense too, because in the Old Testament context, when is the verb sprinkle usually used? Day of Atonement. In the Atonement, and, and, and also in rites of purification. And so he will be marred more. He will be anointed more than any other person, and by this marring and this anointing, he will gather, he will sanctify, sprinkle, purify many nations, and ultimately folks will come to recognize that kings will shut their mouths, they'll be so astonished, for they hadn't understood how important it is what he did. And when they start to see, it will be something they hadn't considered and have such profound effect on him. What a blessing that we don't have to wait to be a king right now to have that same testimony and know what he did. It's a wonderful segue into 53. And I love the way as he opens this powerful servant song prophecy that he explains that we're talking about a mortal Messiah. You know, he starts off with this kind of a challenge, who hath believed our reporter or to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Like, you know, Taylor, are you smart enough to get this? And the answer is yes, he is. But then he says, for he, I think we understand that as the Messiah, shall grow up before him, perhaps the Father, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Why doesn't he say he's going to suddenly spring forth as a mighty oak? So stop and think about the conditions into which Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's born to a mother who is probably experiencing a lot of despising and rejecting of her own people because they all know that this baby 
is not being born in a proper um, timing for marriage, in a conquered nation, so the Jews are, are, are ruled over. The reason they're in Bethlehem is because Caesar decreed that you have to go to your hometown to be counted, so they're, he's in a period of at least, what, 300, 400 years worth of apostasy, overthrown kingdom in a family that is so outcast that there's no room for them in any of the, the, the family homes, the catalamas of the, the town of Bethlehem, which is the hometown for Joseph. These are their relatives. So he's born in – I think that would all classify as dry ground. Yeah. Yeah, the dry ground could, could be apostate Judaism. It could be the virgin birth. It could be where he was raised. Remember what Nathaniel said when he was told Jesus was from Nazareth. Can anything yeah. good come of Nazareth? Yeah. So the whole idea here, as a as as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, he's going to come humbly and meekly and, and obscurely, and from an unexpected source. So different than millennial Messiah. And then what does he look like? Not like the millennial Messiah. He hath no form, no comeliness. When we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He looks like. He looks like a typical Jewish man. So why? Is that important? I think it's beautiful that Jesus didn't want people attracted to him because of any earthly measure. He wanted them drawn to him because of his, his teachings, his doctrine, his love. So they have to recognize him for his message rather than his visage. Yeah. Yeah. And is he going to be universally accepted? Look at the next verses. <laughs> He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There are some beautiful passages uh, leading up to his crucifixion where this prophecy gets directly fulfilled, but I'm sure there are plenty of other times through his life and his ministry where elements of this come into play. Yeah. Every time I read this, I ponder the question, did it, did it have to be this way? I mean, he knew grief and sorrow more than all that we will and even more, but I mean, couldn't he at least have arranged been born in better, better circumstances? He had connections, right? Could he have arranged been born the son of a king and still accomplished his mission? Yeah. And that depends on how you define his mission. If you think it was just to be crucified, then perhaps, but we know that he came not only to die for us, but also to live for us, to show us how to go through all the pains and hardships and struggles and trials that, uh, that life has to offer and still, still do the will of the Father. Because if not, you know, we couldn't look into for an example. You'd have a problem, Taylor, and you'd say, what would Jesus do? And you'd have to say, well, I don't know. Jesus didn't have to go through anything like this. We often so fixate on the divinity of Jesus, we often miss his humanity that he was like all of us. He suffered and struggled, and yet he still chose to be aligned to God. And the older I get, I am so deeply grateful for the divinity of Jesus, and I become deeply grateful that he was also human, that, that, that contrast. And we see it here. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Have we not all experienced that, where we are afflicted in some way? Jesus did not have a simple, easy life. He was like the rest of us. He got hungry at times. He got tired. He had to deal with people that 
I don't know, might have made him feel frustrated and he had to actually manage through that. Or the just challenges of life where things may not have turned out the way he wanted. He may have lost his adopted father as a young boy. So many difficult things he had to deal with. It wasn't simply he showed up as this conquering hero and he got lucky and he won everything. That he worked and strove to live as God asked him to so the rest of us could see a model for how to do the same and ultimately be saved by the one who did conquer all things. One of the reasons we love him so very much, he made sure he would descend below all things so, as you said, he could lift us above all. And he understood the vicarious nature of this suffering as well in the next verse. That, that's the amazing thing to me. If you, if you look at the pronouns in verse 4, 5, and 6, look at all of those pronouns that refer to you and me and the ones that refer to him, and then look at the relationship that Isaiah is establishing between you and Christ. Once again, we mentioned this last time, tying us into that temple recommend question of, do you have a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of his role as your Savior and Redeemer? You see that in verse 4, 5, and 6 as well as any place in Scripture that I know of. So, Taylor already picked up verse 4, look at verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. You'll notice he wasn't wounded for his own transgressions because he didn't have any. Uh, ironically, he was judged according to our works, and he was found guilty and punished to the full extent of, of the law of justice. He was wounded, wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed." Which, by the way, I just have to throw this out there, often in the church we put all of our eggs either in, in the suffering in Gethsemane or some on the cross in some Christian tr traditions, and we sometimes forget that Jesus began the infinite atoning sacrifice entering Gethsemane and it culminates on the cross but there's also this element in between, those, those, um, those judgments that are being made upon him by the, the Jewish Sanhedrin as well as those three Roman judgments, Pilate and then Herod in Luke's account and then back to Pilate, where again, back to the – gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair, that's all taking place somewhere in that time period, but look at verse 5, the ending again, with his stripes the scourging, it seems, we are healed. There's redemption taking place. There, there's, there's atoning sacrifice that is directly benefiting me, and he's not in Gethsemane, and he's not on the cross yet. It's that idea of this whole event from Gethsemane through the trials onto the cross, we are somehow being benefited in some way. What a blessing that statement makes sense to you. With his stripes we are healed. The chastisement of our peace is an important one, too. Chastisement here means the required punishment, the punishment required for us to have peace. And it's not just an absence of violence, mm -hmm. it also means completeness mm -hmm. and wholeness. So the punishments that's required for us to become complete and whole and ultimately perfected was upon him. And who would need that atoning sacrifice? Look at verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, and yet the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What do you suppose he was seeing in verses 7 and 8 as he's 
giving this prophecy. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is done, so he opened not his mouth. There are a couple of times through those trials where he, he'll be asked questions by people. So the, the biggest example possibly is in Luke's account when he's in front of Herod, and Herod's just so, you can, you can picture him just giddy, oh, I can't wait, I've heard so much about you, now show us a magic show. And Jesus didn't say a word to Herod. And then there are other times with the Sanhedrin before this where they, they revile him, they blindfold him, spit upon his face, they smite his face and say, if you're, if you're the Christ, prophesy, who did it? And, and then the high priest will ask some questions and, and they'll revile him saying, you're not going to answer that, sayest thou nothing, basically? So there, those are a couple of examples where this scripture could be directly fulfilled. You get the sense that Isaiah is kind of surprised because early in his ministry, Christ quite often defended and delivered himself. But this time, like a lamb to the slaughter, I'm not going to deliver myself. He's delivered from prison and judgment or justice and, of course, tremendous number of illegalities in this whole, this whole fiasco of a, of a, of a trial they, they try to show. Which isn't it interesting if you go back to the Gethsemane uh, betrayal an arrest scene when Peter pulls out that sword and attacks the servant of the high priest named Malchus, according to John's account. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Put up thy sword. I, I don't need you to defend me physically. If I really needed to, to be defended, I, I've got plenty of angels that I can call down to deliver me, but right now is not the time for me to be delivered from death, but rather to be delivered into the hands of these men to, to suffer, to be lifted up by men, which ties us into his own definition of his gospel. In 3 Nephi 27 when he said, I came into the world to do the will of my Father, my Father sent me that I might be lifted up by men on the cross. This is, this is, it has to happen. This way, yeah. yeah. You get the feeling Isaiah must have envisioned this quite distinctly and precisely. It says he was he made his grave with the wicked, which makes us think he was crucified between two thieves, and with the rich in his burial, he buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. To me, though, the most important verse of this whole chapter is the tenth verse. Starts off a little awkward, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And I, please is actually a good translation of the Hebrew there, but I don't think we understand that to mean that, that the Father took pleasure in the Son's suffering. Um, we would say it glorified the Father to bruise him, it behooved the Father to bruise him and put him to shame and so forth. But the most important part to me of this whole phrase is the next part that says, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Uh, that's understood a lot of different ways, but for me, it makes the most sense to think that thou is referring to me. When you make his soul, whose soul? An offering for sin. Whose sin? My sin. What happens to us? We become his seed. His children. His children. Yeah. Begotten sons and daughters unto Christ. That's certainly the way King Benjamin in Mosiah 5 explained it. Mm -hmm. We become the children of Christ. So is it possible for Christ to be both our brother and our father. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's essential. And how do you make his soul an offering through sin? By the gospel of Christ, through faith, repentance, 
baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end in righteousness and charity. When that happens, you become born again, a new creature in Christ. He becomes your father. This is such a powerful principle, Terry, this idea of relationships and identity. Who am I? Who is he? Who is God? Who are you? This idea that there's nothing wrong with using the analogy of Jesus as your elder brother or eldest brother. That is true and, and keep saying it, but I think what this chapter is showing us is the salvific relationship, the, the, the relationship that we have to have with Christ if we hope to be saved, which is as his son or his daughter, we have to become his seed. Think about it in this context of the travail that takes place in order to give new life, the pain, the anguish, in order to just give us physical life, and now you put it in this atonement context, and here's Jesus who promises in it. So you've got Mosiah 5, verse 7, and you've got third or Ether chapter 3, verse 14, two places in the Book of Mormon where it refers to this relationship of us becoming children of Christ. And that verse answers a question that's asked in verse 8 that's not translated real great in the KJV, who shall declare his generation? What he's really asking is, who are his children? That's the way Abinadi understands it, mm -hmm. and that's what this is saying here. I'll tell you who his children are. It's those who make the atonement effective in their lives in regards to sins for which they're accountable. They are his children. So he quotes Isaiah 53 and 14, and in 15 he gives his commentary on it. And after teaching about Christ and what he does, in verse 10 he says, Now I say unto you, who shall declare his generation? Which he understands to mean, or who is his children? Behold, I say unto you, that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And now, what say ye? And who shall be his seed? Behold, I say unto you, that whosoever has heard the words of the prophets, yea, all the holy prophets, who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord. I say unto you that all those who have hearkened unto their words and believed that the Lord would redeem his people and have looked forward to that day for remission of sins, I say unto you that they are his seed, for they are the heirs of the kingdom, for these are they whose sins he has borne. These are they for whom he died. And then he goes on and says, Know how beautiful upon the mountains are their feet. Answering ultimately the question they first put to him. What an amazing question for each of us to ponder of how, to what degree am I allowing the Lord to help me in that rebirth process? To what degree am I allowing him to help me become his seed so that he can see me clearly and I can see him more clearly in the things I see my hands doing, the things I hear my mouth saying? Am I, am I increasingly becoming more and more and more? like my spiritual rebirth father, Jesus Christ, or, or am I not growing up to become like him? It's a powerful question. Terry, I'm really glad you brought us back to the Book of Mormon and to this encounter Abinadi has with the priests of Noah, because if you look at the way the Book of Mormon is constructed, Alma the Elder is converted because of this exchange, because of Abinadi's teaching about who Jesus is from Isaiah 53, and Alma the Elder then becomes the source of the starting of the church that becomes the foundation for the narratives in Alma, Helaman, all the way up to the arrival of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 53 essentially is the foundation text for much of the narrative we have in the Book of Mormon about how God saves his people in the Book of Mormon. It's really deeply, deeply important, so thank you for 
drawn us back well, into thank this. Thank you for that observation. I'd never considered that, yeah. The first part of verse 11 is a really important statement yeah. too. He shall see the travail of his soul. In other words, he'll walk, see all this suffering and he'll be satisfied, meaning he's going to make sure that it is completed. It's shalom. Yeah, because what would happen if he'd only worked a partial atonement? Jacob tells you in 2 Nephi 9 that we would rot and crumble the mother earth to rise no more, and our spirits would become subject to the devil and become angels to the devil forever to rise no more if he doesn't complete an infinite atonement. Yeah, infinite atonement. That's an amazing thought. And by this knowledge, knowing that he has drunk the bitter cup, the dregs of it, that he's completed this, in this infinite atonement, by that knowledge, he will justify many. He'll save, he'll redeem, he'll bring back, for he shall bear their iniquities. Then the great promises of the blessings. Yeah, he will bear, he will uphold, he will carry, he will, he will take those away. The, the language of Abinadi back in Mosiah 15 is, I, I love this phrase because it's the only, word, only place in Scripture that I know of where he, he puts it so clearly that Jesus will stand betwixt them and justice. That betwixt word, that Jesus is bearing our iniquities. God has to allow eternal punishment to be meted out or mercy would be robbing justice and the Book of Mormon teaches that God would cease to be God. So Jesus preserves God's nature and preserves us by him standing betwixt us and that punishment that is coming forth and it's got my name on it, but that ultimate punishment never hits me because Jesus is standing betwixt me in that punishment and he's bearing my iniquities. It's such sacred ground. It's so real. It's so consequential for the eternities this price that is paid, and sometimes we treat the Savior and his sacrifice flippantly or, or casually. This was not casual suffering. This was, this was so intense that he, when he first begins it, his plead or his pleading to the Father is, remove this cup from me, nevertheless not as I will but as thou wilt. Maybe that's part of the reason why Jacob and Amulek use the adjective infinite to describe this. I mean, you think about the way these, the atonement is infinite and, you know, it lasts for all time, it covers an infinite number of people, an infinite number of sins, but sometimes when you try to quantify it, you may diminish it a bit. I know um, sometimes as a deterrent to sin, we tell individual, don't sin because then when you repent, you'll add to what the Savior suffered. And, but how much is infinite plus one? And you, <laughs> you, you worry that if you have that attitude, you think, well, I'll suffer for it myself then. The truth is, Christ has suffered infinitely for this. We can't increase what he suffered by our personal repentance. But I know we greatly increase his sorrow if we refuse to repent, because then we would have allowed him to suffer infinitely for us in vain. Isn't that, isn't that kind of the essence of what he told Martin Harris through Joseph Smith in section 19 is, behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all that, or so that, we might say, they might not suffer if they would repent, but if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. And even if you're so noble as to say, I'll suffer this for myself, you have to realize that when you emerge from that suffering, having paid the price yourself, you still do not emerge from that worthy to return to God's presence. It's only, only through the merits of Christ and letting him 
bear those iniquities for us, that we emerge from the suffering that he does on our behalf, worthy to return to the Father. The atonement does more than just suffer for the sins. It redeems us into the presence of the Father. Yeah. That's powerful. Verse 12 again reminds us of the blessings that come when we make his soul an offering for sin. He receives an heir, he's an heir to all the Father has, and he divides that spoil, that inheritance, with all of his children. Yeah, we yeah. become joint heirs with Christ, which is an amazing thing because normally when a father's dividing up his inheritance, if he has three kids, each gets one third. But that's not the way it works with what the Father has. Each of us get all of his power, presence, knowledge, and love. It's really the things that matter the most are not, are not, they're multiplied when they're divided. You share love, love grows. You share power, power grows. You share, you, you share knowledge, knowledge grows. Yeah, yeah, we can't have it all. We can have all the Father has through the atonement of Christ. Terry, that's such a beautiful insight. In, in the economy of heaven, things don't get divided. They get multiplied. That's, that is a profound idea that don't feel like it's a zero-sum game where you only have X units of love to give or X units of service to give. If you give any of your time or talent or money or energy, the Lord multiplies that. Back to what we had talked about before, it's powerful. And if you take an infinity and divide it, you have more infinities. So it's a multiplication. It's just this. It's mind-boggling. Almost, it's just incomprehensible. So that brings us to chapter fifty-four. Which, fun fact, this is the chapter that Jesus quotes to the Nephite and Lamanite uh, disciples at the temple in Bountiful, in Third Nephi chapter twenty-two, and it's right after quoting this chapter that in chapter 23, verse 1, Jesus then gives the command, yea, a commandment I give unto you, you search these things diligently, for greater the words of Isaiah, and he, he assures us that all of his words are going to be fulfilled. You know, this chapter opens with a message that I think should mean a lot to Latter-day Saints who are the stewards of the covenant. It begins by talking about two women, one that's married but barren, and then a, someone who's desolate. That's at least the way I understand it, and it's a helpful way. And you're going to tell this barren woman to start singing, which normally you don't sing in celebration if you're barren, but the reason why is because she is going to have children through this desolate wife. In fact, more children than the married wife. In fact, so many in verse 2 that you're going to have to make your tent bigger. There's not going to be room to hold them all. They're going to start breaking out at the seams on the right and on the left hand. And so who are all these children that are brought forth by this desolate woman that will be recognized as part of the covenant family? Verse 3, your seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and they'll make the desolate cities to be inhabited. This idea again that there are these latter-day Gentiles who are going to be recognized as part of the covenant family and are going to bless you abundantly. That same idea in chapter 11 and chapter 49 and chapter 52, here it is again. And as latter-day saints, we identify ourselves as a fulfillment of this prophecy, as those Gentiles who we have come to understand are really part of the covenant family with this responsibility to gather and bless Israel. Now that brings us into verse 4. Notice he says, fear not. There's a concept that comes up occasionally in the scriptures, doesn't it? Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. Speaking back to these two women that Terry was talking about before, he said, 
stop being afraid. You don't need to be ashamed anymore. Forget the shame of thy youth. Re re uh, don't remember the reproach of thy wid widowhood anymore. Why? Because all of these relationships that, that maybe have let you down, maybe these, these failed promises that, that you were holding on to from the world's perspective, look at verse 5, here's the solution, for thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. I love what verses 7 and 8 tell us about him as our God, too. These are so tender. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me." And that's God's way of saying, I promise, I will keep this promise. As an example of that he will accomplish all of this, he, he assures us in verse 10, seven, or 10, excuse me, that the mountains will depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. Um, and to let us assure us that he has the power, he's the creator who can do all these things. Behold, I created the smith that blows the coals in the fire and it bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Every tongue that arises against thee in judgment shall, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord." Of course, this was quoted to the prophet Joseph Smith, too, and uh, I think he took great comfort in knowing that. We all should. So, in chapter 55, again, he's assuring us that he has the knowledge, power, presence, and love to save and redeem us, and will do this very thing. We already mentioned the first two verses that we're going to be, that we can purchase these things without cost to us. It's a pure gift of grace to us, and we should be looking at that rather than spending our time searching things that are not bread and things that cannot ultimately satisfy us. Um, we especially like verse 8 and 9, as he invites us then to think about what really matters and to get our perspectives and values right. He uses a beautiful chiasm here that um, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. And we all know that. And he goes on and says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, that little chiasm starts with the idea that there's your thoughts and there's my thoughts, and then there's the idea is there's your ways and there's my ways, and ultimately there's the heavens and the earth, and the heavens are the highest. It's an invitation for us then to look to the heavens and to look to God for our thoughts and values rather than to the ways of the earth and that of men. And he promises that if we do so, he will give us bread in verse 11, that we won't be that our efforts will not, in verse, or verse 10, he gives us bread. In verse 11, he promises that he won't let these things return to us void. And ultimately, he promises us, well, in verse 3, the sure mercies of David and that they're given to us in verse 13 as an everlasting sign. And we understand the importance of an everlasting sign and covenant and mercy of the Lord. So, a beautiful chapter, again, to show that God has the power, presence, knowledge, and love to save and redeem us. You know, there's this, as, as we jump into chapter 56 now, there's that amazing story in the New Testament of the some of the chief priests of the people feeling so haughty because of their genealogy, 
pedigree charts, and they can they can give you their genealogy all the way back to Abraham, and they're feeling so secure in their family history, almost as if to say, because of who my dad and mom are, I'm saved. And Jesus making this statement of... And I'll build on this. I honor the pioneer ancestors that established the valleys of Utah, but sometimes in the church we speak with so much reverence of those who are their descendants that people who may not be descendants of the pioneers in the 1800s might feel like, well, am I less than in God's current kingdom because I don't have somebody who settled the Salt Lake City Valley? And I haven't quite heard it the way that the uh, people were doing in the time of Jesus, but it's an important message we have going on here that genealogy is ultimately not what saves us. And I think it was an issue in the time of Christ. As you remember, there was a lot of confusion in the early church in, uh, of how to integrate Gentiles into the church. Um, in fact, it takes a special revelation to Peter to let him know that Gentiles are not second-class citizens and they can have access to the covenants. Well, uh, Isaiah teaches this very early in chapter 56. He, he begins by talking an invitation to the covenant people to keep his salvation, that they'll be blessed. And then look at verse 3. Neither let the son of a stranger, that's a ger or, or a Gentile, that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Eunuchs, according to Mosaic law, also couldn't have access to the temple and enjoy the fullness of the blessings. But notice what he says in verse 4. Thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs and to the Gentiles, that keep my Sabbaths, that choose the things that please me, and that take hold of my covenant, even them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Yeah. And then the son of a stranger that joins himself to the Lord, that's the Gentile again, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servant, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called in a house of prayer for all people. This would have astonished Isaiah's contemporaries, because in his days, who could go into the temple? Only the priests. Only the priests amongst the Levites. But he's saying the time will come when anyone who is willing to accept the covenants can enter the house of the Lord and participate in temple ordinances and worship. He will give them, as it says in verse uh, verse, uh, verse 5, they will give him uh, in his house a place and a name that makes him better than sons and daughters, a special place among the covenant family, and an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Now, that phrase, place and a name, is, is intriguing to Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew is Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem. Some, some may recognize that as the name of the Jewish Holocaust Museum. The word Yod appears over 300 times in the Old Testament, and it's typically translated as a as a hand. It also can mean a place or a memorial or a monument, and the KJV translators thought that, you know, I'll give them a memorial and place in the house of the Lord, and that makes excellent sense. But for Latter-day Saints, it also makes excellent sense to say, these who qualify to enter the house of the Lord will receive a hand and a name that gives them a special place in the covenant family and an everlasting name that will not be cut off. So the, the end message is accept the gospel. You're part of the covenant family. It is righteousness that's going to determine genealogy. 
righteousness that's going to determine election, not your genealogy, which is important to know in the latter days as these Gentiles bring the gospels together, scattered Israel. Such a beautiful, hope-filled message for all of us because keep in mind, there's not a lot you and I can do about our genealogy pedigree chart, but there's a lot you and I can do about the degree of righteousness we choose to employ in our life. Yeah. Now, the end of this chapter and most of chapter 57 is really a throwback to the theme of the first 35 chapters of Isaiah. Where it's hellfire and damnation as he warns and rebukes these people for having forsaken their covenant. Um, most of these last 26 chapters f focus on the restoration and the redemption and salvation, but these two, he just He's got to throw in a little bit of rebuke and warning, and so he calls them greedy dogs, and in chapter 57, he just just really chastises them for turning to idolatry and likens it to, to playing the harlot. He makes it very clear at the end of chapter 57. He talks about peace to the righteous. In fact, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 57, is if a righteous man perishes, it's no big deal. He's righteous, and they'll go to bed sleeping comfortably, knowing if I die, I'm okay, but in contrast, verse three and four, you know, you sorcerers, you, 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 um, you adulterers, and so forth, who have commit all these terrible sins and violating this covenant that you've made with me. He's already made the point that he's the husband, and that trust and love and devotion that ought to exist between Jehovah and His covenant people like to be ought to be like that that exists between a, a husband and wife. And so, while the righteous have peace, the wicked don't. And he finishes chapter fifty-seven. He makes this point. The wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace. Ein shalom, saith the Lord to the wicked. That's pretty definitive. He doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room in for interpretation in that one. You don't have to know Hebrew to know what Isaiah was saying. There really is no peace. In the Book of Mormon, perhaps the way we would read that is, wickedness never was happiness. Amen. So once again, we invite viewers, as you're studying Isaiah 50 through 57, to look for evidences of Isaiah's testimony that God has the power, the presence, the knowledge, and the love to save us, and that as part of his plan, he is going to send both a mortal and a millennial Messiah to redeem us and that also as part of this plan, there will be a latter-day Gentile people who will become recognized as part of the covenant people, or as the Book of Mormon puts it, numbered amongst the house of Israel, who will gather scattered Israel in preparation for the coming of Christ and will be a witness that God has not forgotten or forsaken his people. What a, what a treat it's been to have you join us today, Terry. Thank you for your for your life of dedicated study and devotion to the Lord. We appreciate it. So, as we close today, uh, just a little line here from verse 13. He that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. What an amazing thing to know that God on high is giving us these little teeny tiny symbols as placeholders for the real thing in eternity. These experiences in temples, in families, in homes, in relationships, to, to see and sense of his goodness and of his majesty and these, these things that Terry's been talking about as little reminders along the covenant path that if we'll just 
move forward, trusting in him, in the end, he will share all that he has with us. I can't think of a, a more, more mind-blowing and yet more powerful example of God's goodness and grace. We know that he lives, we know that he loves you, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness. Thank you.